0: Our Lord Jesus once was approached by a group of religious leaders who posed a question to him about divorce. And they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And in answer to that question, Jesus appealed to God's original intent for marriage when God made the first woman and presented her as a companion for the first man. And he quoted Genesis 2.24 that we read earlier. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. He went on to say to Uh, those Pharisees that the reason an allowance was made for divorce in the law was because of the hardness of man's heart. Unfortunately and sadly, we live in a day where the institution of marriage ordained by God is often ignored and even trampled upon. The divorce rate in our country is nearly one in two marriages, Couples living outside of the marriage relationship is mushrooming, and now people who are even of the same sex can get married. How the Lord's heart must be breaking. At the same time, he is righteously angered. Jesus said that a permit of divorce was allowed by Moses, but from the beginning it was not so. It was never God's will and intention that a one woman, one man relationship in marriage ever be broken. And today we're going to go back to that paradise world that God created, where He placed a perfect man in a perfect environment and gave to him a perfect complement or companion. As we read or read this narrative, only one thing is found in God's creation to this point. Uh, that was not good. He said, it is not good for the man to be alone. All the other animals and the birds, uh, the creatures that he had made had their mates, but man did not. So God said, I will make a a helper uh, compatible or comparable to him. And the Lord turned a not good situation into a very good situation. It does us well to be reminded from time to time of God's goodness in establishing the principle of marriage. It fulfills our need of human companionship, a lifetime partner with whom we can serve God and start a new family who will worship him together. Marriage is among the greatest blessings and is even used as a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. So let's ask God's blessing on his word today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful this morning for your goodness and for your greatness and for your mercy and your grace. Lord, we're thankful that we know our origins. We know that we came from you. We know that your purpose for us was to worship and serve you, uh, to have dominion over the earth, to uh, come together in holy matrimony, uh, one man for one woman, and start a family that would also worship and serve you. Lord, we realize that because of human sinfulness, we often mess up in this area of life. And Lord, we we pray for your forgiveness as a nation, as a people. We pray, Lord, you'd help us as your people, that wherever we are in this uh, situation of marriage relationships, that we would seek to serve you and put you first. And Lord, promote the uh, purposes and intents that you have for the marriage relationship. And we just pray your blessing on the preaching and teaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, Amen. <clears throat> well, Genesis chapter 2 explains to us how man was created, placed in that beautiful environment, and uh, the purpose God gave him to worship him, to serve him, and to work in that garden. And as he did so, he would exercise dominion over the world. But the man could not obey all of God's commandments to be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion uh, without a helper. He needed a partner, suitable for him. And so verses 18 to 20 convey the recognition of Adam's need. And then in verses 21 to 25, we see the divine remedy for that need. So let's take a look, at, all, at first of all, at verses 18 to 20. And we see here in verse 18, the Lord's determination to fill man's need. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, there is a sense in which this connects to that commandment that forbade them to eat of the tree of the fruit of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Because good and evil, knowing that perfectly, was the uh, prerogative of God. And he's the one who determines what is good for man and what is not good. And this knowledge can never really be taken for oneself to determine, although that's what happened to Adam and Eve, and that's what we continue to do to this day. But God saw that man was alone in the garden and that this condition, this state, was not good. And note that he does not say this of the man, but man is in general. That means humanity, mankind. It's not good that mankind be alone. God has a broader plan here that he's going to bring to the realization of uh, Adam. So God meant for us to be social beings. God meant for us to commune and relate to each other. So this initial communion began when the first man became complete, through the creation of a counterpart. Humanity does not just consist of men. uh, It has women. It needs women as well for a successful society. And God never intended men and women to contend with each other, to be at odds with each other, but to live in mutual respect and dignity toward each other. So God determined to provide a suitable partner for the man, Adam. Now, at this point, God makes the statement that it was not good for man to be alone. He cannot fulfill God's wishes by himself. He needs a partner. In the King James Version, the word is a helpmeet. In the New King James, a comparable helper. So let's take a look at what this word means. Uh, Obviously, the concept of a helper is indicated, help meet or helper. This, however, does not convey anything negative or inferior within that word and that relationship. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, of the 19 times that you find this word helper, 16 of them relate to God himself. God is the helper of humanity. He's the divine helper. So it's not a demeaning term. It indicates one who provides what is lacking. God provides in us much that is lacking. Uh, it, it, It speaks of someone who can do what another cannot do alone. So obviously, Adam could not populate the earth without such a helper. He he couldn't uh, tend the garden without another one to aid him. There were things he could do alone, but also things that his helper could do with him and for him. They together were to share a mutual dependence. They were to be co-laborers, to enjoy life in the garden, worshiping, obeying, and serving the Lord, And they were to bring new human life into the world in a family relationship. Now, this word also indicates someone comparable or suitable for the man, a counterpart who corresponded to him physically and spiritually. And what he lacked for the fullness of his life, she would supply. What she lacked, he would supply. So they're really indispensable to each other in that relationship. The Hebrew word also supplies the meaning of equality and adequacy. So they are equal as God's image bearers. They are adequate to bring masculinity and femininity into a bond of one flesh, making mankind whole what God intended for it to be. So what God was about to do was necessary for the fulfillment of his will and purposes for the world and humanity. Now, uh, these verses then portray the wise way that God brought Adam to the realization of his need. In verses 19 and 20, we see Adam's discovery of that need. So what does God do? Well, verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now, let's make sure we don't misunderstand this verse. We already know that before Adam was created, God created uh, every beast of the field, every bird of the air. So he had already done this. It's making a statement of fact. Now the time comes, Adam needs to discover that none of these creatures are suitable for him. So the Lord parades them before him to see what Adam would call them. And uh, uh, Adam is going to kind of inspect them and identify them and give them a name. So in this way, Adam will become aware of his own uniqueness from these creatures and begin to exercise dominion over them. Now, I've mentioned before that in ancient times, the naming of things was an indication of a person's power or authority over that which is named. For instance, when God named day and night, heaven and earth, He was exercising his authority, his dominion over what he had created. So now, in obedience to God's command, Adam begins to name these animals, and that indicates that he has authority, he has dominion over them. Now, some object that Adam could have named all of these creatures in less than a day's time. But there were far less species then than there are now, and it's not necessary to assume that he named every single creature. It also indicates the great intelligence that Adam had, that he could quickly identify uh, the differences between these creatures and give a name to them. But when he's finished, he realizes that there was no creature suitable for him. It goes on to say that in verse 20, so Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So he discovers his uniqueness. All the other animals have their mates, but there's none suitable for Adam. We might say the apes had their chance but they were not comparable to Adam in their design, in their intellect, in their spirit, or their uh, image of God, which, of course, they did not have in the first place. So if we believe the Bible record, there is no process of evolution suggested here. The cattle, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field were all living at the same period of time. One group did not develop from another group, or over eons of time. So, Adam discovers that he indeed is alone in his uniqueness. The other creatures are inferior to him. They're subordinate to him. They're different from him. And he realizes that he needs a helper. And he will appreciate much more what God will do to supply this great need, coming to the discovery of it himself. Now, in the next series of verses, beginning with verse 21, the Lord's remedy for Adam's need. And first of all, we see the divine action that's taken in verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So here we see three divine actions. First of all, we see the divine anesthesia God puts Adam to sleep. Uh, if you've ever gone through an operation, uh, Because of the uh, prodding in your body that's going to go on, you are put to sleep. You are given anesthesia. Uh, When I had my operation, I remember going in the operating room, seeing a few people in there, starting to say hello to them, and boom, I don't remember anything after that. Uh, and, And I'm thankful that I don't. But that's the way it is. So in this situation, God puts Adam to sleep. Adam's going to be passive. He's not going to really have anything active to do with uh, this operation of the Lord, as he uh, uh, is going to operate to bring another person into being who will correspond to Adam in every way. God will provide the perfect partner that he needs. One commentator Uh, said this, the sleep preserves for the man the mystery of her creation and the subsequent surprise at her appearance. Some have even suggested that this may also be symbolic of, of death, that Adam's sleep is a figure of laying down one's life for another. And perhaps it's a picture of Christ laying down his life for his bride, the church, which derives its life from him. Eve derives her life from Adam. Adam goes through, in a sense, a a death sleep for her to come into being. So we can see the possible relationship there between Christ laying down his life for us, his church. And without the man, the woman could not have been formed. But from the woman, all future men would be born. So this is conveying to us the vital interconnection between men and women that's even alluded to in the New Testament. So we have uh, uh, the divine anesthesia, where Adam is uh, put to sleep for a duration of time. Then in uh, 21b, we have the beginning of the divine surgery. Now, we've been told the animal kingdom and Adam were formed from the dust of the ground. The woman, however, was formed from the man. Both were made from preexisting materials, but the woman was only indirectly then related to the earth because she comes from man. And perhaps this indicates the dignity of the woman uh, and her unusual creation. Now, the woman is taken from the man's side. It says here, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. The verb to take may be an indication of a a marital relationship because this is the verb that's used elsewhere uh, as an idiom of marriage. In other words, Uh, When you took your marriage vows, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? That same usage is found in the Old Testament where someone takes to himself a wife. So it's the same verb. It's also interesting that the word rib is translated 35 times in the Old Testament as side. This is the only place where the term rib is used. So the Lord took flesh, not necessarily just the rib, from the side of Adam. He took his flesh, he took his bone, and from that he made his partner. Matthew Henry, you probably have heard uh, a statement that he made uh, that is pretty much out there, but let me let me uh, state that for you. He said, "The woman is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be his equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved." I think that's a pretty good uh, description. And then another commentator said this, just as the rib is found at the side of the man and is attached to him, even so the good wife, the rib of her husband, stands at his side to be his helper counterpart and her soul is bound up in his. And uh, truly they were soul mates as husband and wife ought to be. So we have the divine anesthesia, the divine surgery, And when everything is finished, we have the divine presentation of Adam's bride, so to speak. Verse 22. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. He presented her to the man. Now, when you go through a wedding ceremony, usually the bride is going to be escorted down the aisle by whom? By her father, for father's living. Uh, so God, the father creator, presents the woman he has made to Adam as the bride, his perfect counterpart. So perhaps there that's where we get the idea of the father giving away the daughter as bride to her husband. Uh, The father has brought her into existence, just as God brought Eve into existence. The father has the authority to give the bride away. And we see all this coming together here as God the father presents to Adam his new wife. And he's brought her into being and willingly gives her away to her husband. Uh, So again, we have a lot of symbolism here, Uh, symbolic perhaps of the day that God will present the new Jerusalem, the church of God, descending out of heaven to to be presented to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, as his beautiful bride. All right, so God has fulfilled his purpose he has brought into being a helpmeet, a, a suitable helper for Adam. Now let's see Adam's response, verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now these are the first recorded words of Adam. Now it could well be that Adam is... Uh, spoken to God or communicated with God in some way. God certainly has communicated with him, but now we have the first words of Adam that are recorded, and they are poetic, uh, describing the intimate relationship he has with his partner and naming her appropriately. He says, this is now bone of my bones. That's, uh, those first words are in the emphatic position And they express uh, something, the idea of, at last, at last, this is a person who corresponds to me. After having perused the creatures of the garden and naming them, at last, one has come to correspond to me that will be my partner and my helper. And uh, it's kind of a, a jubilant response. Now, Adam's words uh, express his astonishment, his joy at this suitable and beautiful creature God made for him. Adam was well pleased with God's creative work. Now there's someone with which he can share his life and fulfill the will of God, worship the Lord, and accomplish the work that God has set them out to do. Then he uses the expression, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Well, you can take that literally. Uh, She literally came from his bone and flesh out of his side. And these words emphasize a unique relationship, oneness, sameness, intimacy. It's an expression used elsewhere in the Old Testament of uh, blood relatives. Uh, You speak of a a brother, a sister, father, mother, these are bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, so a very close tight relationship being indicated there. And there could be no better word to express that relationship between Adam and his wife. And then he gives her the name woman. So this is the derivation of man and of woman, and of course they're they're closely related. Uh, in the Hebrew as they are in the English. The Hebrew term is isha, which is taken from the um, male word ish. So it's the, the feminine form of ish, mankind. So in these words, again, you have that, that that completion of humanity where God never intended there to be just a man, but humanity consists of man and woman, men and women. <coughs> So she's the female counterpart of mankind. Earlier, we saw that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's the completion of God's purpose uh, for mankind to exercise dominion and multiply and be fruitful in the earth. So now Adam has his bride to fulfill God's directive to him. This passage concludes really probably um, an exhortation from the author about everything that's happened here. And he adds this principle, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is a principle that's going to hold true uh, for the future of mankind. It is the divine institution. And we find here God's creative order and God's intention. And this is something, again, that separates the animal kingdom from the human kingdom. We are not animals. We're distinct and we're unique and we're different from the animals. And one of those differences, you don't ever see animals going through marriage celebrations. Uh, There are occasions where in the uh, animal kingdom, um, uh, a male and a female will mate for life, but it's not the normal thing. Uh, God made it so that his people men and women would come together in holy matrimony and be the foundation really for society and the direction in which society would go. So we find here God's creative order and intention. God made one man and one woman for that man. That's the foundation of the home. That's the foundation of society. All relationships outside of the one man one woman union are forbidden by God. All relationships outside of a monogamous heterosexual union are not condoned by God. When sin entered the world, the the potential for broken relationships obviously began. Uh, when God comes later to confront them about their sin. Um, Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent. And so the blame game starts from that very first sin. And of course, the blame game causes a lot of marriages to break up. Uh, Mankind has drastically abused and perverted God's original design for marriage in the home. We have all kinds of things going on in the world that that, uh, are against what God intended. Uh, polygamy, homosexuality, premarital sex, adultery, pornography, divorce, uh, misogyny, which is a big name being thrown around today, uh, wrong attitude towards women. Uh, none of this was God's intention or desire for the human race, but we we've, we've perverted these things because we become sinful creatures. They're, re- they're the result of human sin and failure to, to obey God's order. Now, sometimes Christians fall prey to some of these things. Uh, There's always uh, forgiveness when we repent. Then we need to start anew at the point we recognize our failure and we need to move forward. Uh, If a person's been divorced and they get remarried, then they get saved, or they realize that everything's messed up. You've got to start from where you're at. You can't go back. You can't change things. You've got to move forward from wherever you're at and um, obey God from that point. And we also have to teach and guide successive generations in the path of God's will in spite of our own failures. So uh, God's pattern is for marriage and the home is there in verse 24. And we can really repeat it or reduce it to three words, leave, cleave, and weave. Our author tells us, therefore, as a result of this original situation, a man shall leave his father and his mother. You have to leave your home the, the former authorities that you were under, and begin your new family. Uh, this does not necessarily mean leaving in a geographical sense. In Hebrew society, children seldom move far from their paternal roots, and they might even have, have shared portions of a, a large home. But what it does mean is that the man becomes the head of a new home, a new family, He's no longer under the authority of his parents, nor are his, uh, is his wife to her parents, but they're under the authority of Christ. And he's responsible to lead his family in the worship of God, to serve and obey the Lord, and be involved in work that will provide for that family and will help others as well. And parents may still advise their married children but they have no right to try to rule over them or influence them in ways that they think that they should go. Lots of times we learn by the school of hard knocks. Uh, So we need to be careful uh, that we have kind of a hands-off approach in the relationships as they begin to change. He goes on to say that a man shall be joined to his wife. Now, in the King James Version, that word joined is cleave. So we have leave and we have cleave. What does that mean? Well, the word means to hold fast to, and it's been suggested we could actually translate it glue. Be glued to your wife. In other words, be as close as you possibly can. And this is also used elsewhere to describe covenant faithfulness. When a couple join together in a marriage ceremony, what do they do? They vow to be faithful to each other. They come into a covenant relationship that binds them together for life. It's an exclusive relationship. It should be the strongest relationship we have with anyone other than the Lord himself. And it takes work, and determination to build that bond and to stay faithful to each other throughout life. And the key, of course, is mutual Christ-like love. So we, we leave our parents, we cleave to our new mate, and then it says they shall become one flesh. So we weave a life together in the future. When it uses that term one flesh, the union is not just a sexual one. It includes many other dimensions. You become one in many ways. Spiritually. Uh, intellectually you can uh you, you come together for decisions and things of that nature. Emotionally you support each other. Socially you fulfill needs. So all of these resolve the issue of the man not being alone. And God did his perfect work in that. But we, of course, have work to do to make that home harmonious and the way God intended it to be. Now, there's one last statement here, verse 25. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Uh, in the original creative state, we can understand this. There was no reason for them to be ashamed or naked. They did not know uh, or attach any evil to this condition. They were innocent. They were free of the sin nature. They were uh, free of, of uh, understanding anything that might be associated with this that is now considered wrong and evil and things of that nature. And it's kind of similar to when your, your children were very young. And uh, they might run around with no clothes on and they, they don't even realize it. They don't think twice about it. They're not ashamed of that. Uh, and this is the way Adam and Eve were. This statement also connects this narrative as we get into the next one about the temptation uh, because it introduces a play on words. The word naked and the word crafty or cunning in verse 1 of chapter 3 are related to each other It's a play on words, and the devil is is being seen here as uh, deceptive, cunning, and making them aware of things that they never perceived to be evil now become evil. So we'll see more about that next time. All right, as we conclude this morning, let's just think of a few things that this relates to. As we see the breakdown of God's institution of marriage, we're going to experience the breakdown of society itself. We're already seeing this. For instance, um, uh, my wife has found a lot of uh, of, uh, information about her family and mine through Ancestry.com. But in in the future, how are you going how are you going to uh, track down your progenitors if you're, you don't even have the same family name? You got the husband, you got the wife, and somehow you got to figure out how we're going to go back from there. Uh, and, and God can't bless a nation that supports these things we've me- mentioned promiscuity, same sex marriage, pornography, homosexuality, gender transference or the many other sins in the realm of of sexuality. God will not put up with this forever. But then, no matter what failures we may have experienced in our life, even as a Christian, that go against God's uh, pattern for marriage, we can be forgiven. We may not be able to change what has happened, but we can change what will happen and we determine to obey and serve God in our, our, our current state. Then we have a responsibility again to teach and promote what the Bible says, what the principle of the family is, and that's a one-woman, one-man marriage relationship. God designed it. It doesn't matter what society condones. It doesn't matter how it tries to redefine what a family is, just a bunch of people living together, that's family. No, that's not. We have to follow the biblical pattern if we want God's blessing. Then today, if you're married, I hope you think the best thing that ever happened to you besides being saved was the person God gave to you as a marriage partner. And I trust you'll endeavor to be faithful to that person until you die, or they die, or the Lord comes. And I hope that you'll be an example to the world of what God intended a loving uh, marriage and family were to be. And then, before the day ends, why don't you tell your spouse how much you appreciate them? Let's bow for prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today for your love to us in uh, providing the marriage relationship. Lord, we realize that all of us in that relationship have failed to live up to our responsibilities. We've sinned against our wives and our husbands and our children and our parents. We know that uh, fallen creatures do this. But Lord, as we seek to Uh, be forgiven as we seek to obey your will. We know that this can be a very uh, joyful and abundant and fruitful experience. And we pray, Lord, you help us in no matter what condition we are today to determine to serve you and do the best we can to have a family that will serve you as well. Bless these truths to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen uh <clears throat>